0: The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Please open your Bibles and meet me in John 21. We're not going to be saying that much longer. In fact, next week, believe it or not, is the final message in the Gospel of John. Why are you cheering? Why, Why is it such... I don't know if you're happy or excited or what, but as our final message, we may do a review of some sort after, after that, but we are down to our last message or two in this wonderful gospel. And so next week, we are going to finish John chapter 21. Julie Theory is going to be here next Sunday, and she is bringing two of the kids with her from Tenerife, Spain, and she's going to be worshiping with us, and we'll get the fellowship with her and hear what's happening over in Spain, and so I know you're looking forward to that. We come today, though, to our second to the last message in this wonderful book. John 21, verses 15 to 17, which is about Peter's restoration. It's about the restoration of a fallen disciple. It's one of the most encouraging passages of Scripture, I believe, that there is. It's about the mercy and compassion of Christ to restore a man who's been living with some incredible regret... And has a bunch of if-onlys going through his head. I want to ask you a question this morning. Do you have any of those? Do you have any if-onlys in your life right now or senses of regret? I'm sure all of us can look back at certain times and certain situations and see how we handled people or handled such circumstances. And we wish we had responded differently As I was preparing this week and studying this passage, I was thinking about a number of instances where I I could and should have done something different. I should have been more gracious to someone in a certain situation. I should have been more kind. I should have been more patient. I should have said something when I didn't say something, or I should have not said something when I did say something. All of us have regrets, All of us have some if-onlys in our life. If only we had handled this differently. If only we had said something differently. If only we had been more gracious. I'm sure you can all think back and come to a point where you can remember some of those in your own life. There are a number of different categories of regret. There are those kinds of regret that were particularly shameful or embarrassing for us. There are circumstances that I'm sure you can look back on and think about. And when you think about those circumstances, they are particularly... Shameful to you or embarrassing or you're ashamed as you think about those things and it brings you a profound sense of regret There's another category of regrets and those are those things that you you did to hurt someone either intentionally or unintentionally those circumstances where a word improperly spoken or an action towards a certain person has brought them great hurt There's another category of regrets, and it's those things that you did not do but are now looking back wishing you had done. You wish you had said something to that person or you you wish you had shared the gospel at that moment. Things that you had not done but looking back now wish you had. All of these situations and many more can bring us a a profound sense of regret and can cause us to say, if only I had done something different or said something different. This is the nature of regret. Regret. Regret causes us sorrow. Regret causes us sadness. Regret causes us to, to grieve over how we responded in a certain situation. It brings a sense of guilt and shame. And the curious thing about regret, I was thinking about this this week, the curious thing about regret is it seems spiritual to be regretful, Right? It seems like the right thing to do to be a person who has lots of regret. And so it seems like the more regret we have, the more spiritual we are, the more godly we are, the more that must please God if we have more regrets. Any of us may even think that if we forget those things we regret or move on from them, then we're acting like they were no big deal in the first place. And so it actually seems right, it seems good, it seems glorifying to God if we actually have regret. We think it's our duty sometimes to be regretful. We're going to learn today as we go through this account in the Gospel of John that the glory of the Gospel and the joy of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ liberates us from regret. It frees us from the shackles of regret and the gracious mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ can release us from the weight of those regrets that have weighed heavy upon us for months or even years. In fact, we can even go as far as to say that it is God's will for us not to be those kind of people who labor and bring up past regrets. It is God's will for us to jettison past regrets and be free from those things that weigh us down and move ahead in his grace and his mercy. I believe that you see this lesson learned throughout the scriptures. There are many who in the scriptures who, if you look at their lives, you would say that they should be people of regret. Think of King David. David was a man who sinned greatly with Bathsheba led to adultery, the death of her husband, the death of their child together. And not only that, years later, he numbered the people which caused the death of 70,000 Israelites. And if a man should have regret, he should. And yet, as you read his writings, as you read about his life, as you read the Psalms, you don't get a sense of, of regret. And certainly, he knew that there were things wrong, and he repented of those things, but he didn't live in the past. He didn't live under the weight of those past regrets and let those define him. He came to know God's restoring grace. And God's restoring mercy. Think about Paul. Paul actually killed Christians. Paul, Paul made it his aim and his ambition in life to see that Christians were arrested, imprisoned, and killed. And it was Paul who was there giving hearty approval to Stephen, when he was martyred in Acts chapter 7, and Acts uh, chapter 8 verse 1 says he was there in hearty agreement with putting uh, Stephen to death. And so here's, here's Saul at the death of Stephen, clapping his hands and saying, yes, this is good, he's approving. He zealously hunted down Christians, threw them in prison, and was thoroughly pleased when they were put to death. Talk about having something to be regretful about. But when you read Paul, when you you read his writings, you don't see him dwelling on his past sins. You don't see him being defined by that. You don't see him going back and saying, oh, woe is me, because look at these things I've done in the past. What you see in Paul is a man who's been liberated by the grace of Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, he says, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead." I press on toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. He was not defined by his past. He did not hold on to those past events and those past regrets. No, he was enjoying the grace and the mercy of Christ. There's many other examples of men and women like this in the scriptures. But of all those in the scriptures who could have lived with regrets, no one probably had more regrets than Peter. Think about Peter. He was the first of the first disciples called. He was one of the inner circle. He was with James and John in the inner circle of the closest disciples to Jesus. He he was the leader of the apostolic band. He was with Christ as he performed miracles. He walked on the water with Jesus. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration as he and James and John see the veil of Christ's glory pulled back. And they get a glimpse of the glorious Christ He sat at his feet as he taught. He had a front and center seat on what Christ was doing. He was the most privileged of all the disciples. And yet, when the heat was on, when the pressure was on, when it counted most, he caved. He caved. It was... Headstrong, bold, brash, impetuous Peter who failed to acknowledge Christ when it mattered most, not once, not twice, but three times, when it really counted, he said, no, i don 't know this man, and he denied the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly, if anyone should have lived with regrets, it should have been Peter, right? Read first Peter. Read second Peter there 's no regret. Here's a man who's been transformed by Jesus Christ. The tender mercy and grace of Christ gently and lovingly restored him back to fellowship and service. And so he didn't look back to those past denials. He looked ahead to what Christ is going to do and what Christ had done at the cross. That's what defined him. And so this is the benefit and the joy of knowing Christ. To be graciously restored when we fail. To know that his mercy and his grace is stockpiled much higher than our past regrets and it's that lesson that we come to learn this morning in john chapter 21 verses 15 to 17 and that's why i believe this may be one of the most encouraging passages of scripture and i believe that some of you need to hear this this morning because some of you may be wondering if you've committed the unpardonable sin and if you're now benched for the rest of your life i remember a few times in little league Being benched, you know, you make the error out in the field, and coach says, "All right, you got to come sit down. We're going to put someone else out there so so they can play for a while." You remember being benched, and and so maybe some of you are here this morning, and you're saying, "You know, do I did I commit the error enough to be pulled from the team, to be pulled from the field? Do I need to sit on the sidelines now and not be involved in life and ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ?" Well, the good news is, no, you can be restored. You you can be put back into fellowship with Christ. You can be recommissioned into ministry because of the grace of the Lord Jesus. And that's what we're going to see this morning in chapter 21, verses 15 to 17. Remember that we said last week that this chapter 21 is really the epilogue of the book. It's the final conclusion. And we said last week that the book seems to conclude in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Remember we said, look at that verses, those verses, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, many other signs, therefore Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's where the book seems to end. And if you're reading along, you get to those verses, you say, huh, book over, done, conclusion. And then there's this other chapter. What do we make of that? Some have said it's not it's not really there because John wrote it. Someone added it later or it doesn't belong here. But really, when you think about it, there are a number of loose ends that need to be tied up before you conclude this book. And if chapter 121 is not here, then you don't have those loose ends tied up for us. And we don't have the complete picture that the Holy Spirit wants us to have. What are some of those loose ends? Remember, we said one of those was what happened to the disciples... After Jesus rose from the dead and then ascended to heaven, did he still care for them? Did he still provide for them? Did he still meet their needs? And the answer to that question is yes, absolutely, he did. We looked at that last week in verses 1 to 14 as Christ tells them to throw the net over the side of the boat. They get a huge catch of fish and they drag it in. And the lesson is yes, Christ does still provide for his people. Another loose end that needs to be tied up is what would happen to the apostle John. There was a rumor floating around that he would live till the second coming. Did that really happen? Did that really take place? Did he really live that long? Well, he's going to answer that question for us in chapter 21 at the end of the chapter. So you've got to come back next week for the rest of the story. There's another loose end that needs to be tied up. What about those things that Christ did which are not described for us or contained in this book? There's many other things. What about those things? Well, John's going to answer that question for us next week. There's another loose end that needs to be tied up. Maybe one of the most important loose ends that need to be tied up before this book concludes, and it's this. What about Peter? What about Peter? He's the leader of the disciples, and yet he sinned grievously. And so the question floating around the minds of the disciples and the question which would be raised in the early church is, is Peter restored? Or has he been benched? Has he been removed? Has he been taken out of service to Jesus Christ and in ministry because of his denial of the Lord Jesus? This question has to be answered. And so here in John chapter 21, Christ begins to probe the innermost recesses of Peter's heart to discern where he's at, to discern his humility, to discern his brokenness and his commitment. And the result of this is that Peter is publicly restored. the disciples needed to know that Christ restored Peter the early church needed to know that Christ restored Peter and Peter's about to learn that the kingdom of heaven is regret free and you need to learn that and i need to learn that as well that the kingdom of heaven is regret free that's why this has been called the the best epilogue ever The best epilogue that's ever been written, some have termed it that, because it tells us how to handle past regrets. It shows us how God's exceeding grace in triumph exceeds our failures and exceeds our sin. It's a chapter all about sins forgiven, fellowship restored, and fruitfulness guaranteed. Let me show you these verses, just three verses we're going to look at this morning John 21, verses 15 to 17. Follow along as I read. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to the Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. There's two lessons I want to show you this morning. Two lessons that we need to learn from Peter's failure and restoration. Two truths that I I believe are going to be a a great blessing to your heart as you see the mercy of Christ played out specifically in the life of Peter and we will draw some implications for our life as well. Two lessons that we need to learn from Peter's failure and Peter's restoration. Number one is that failure is inevitable in our relationship with Christ. This is the first truth that we need to understand and learn is that failure is inevitable in our relationship with Christ. And I want you to go to John chapter 18. Hold your finger here in 21 and go back a couple chapters to John chapter 18. We've looked at this already. We've discerned this already. We've studied this already. But I want to help you appreciate the glory and the grace of Christ in restoring Peter first by understanding what took place when, when he really fell. We have to understand that failure is inevitable. Failure is one of those things that that we can count on in this life, and we can count on it in the Christian life. There's not many things we're all good at, but we're all pretty good at this, aren't we? We're all pretty good at failure, at sinning, and at times falling short of God's grace. So for a moment, let me just remind you what took place in Peter's life. We need to appreciate what took place in his fall so we can appreciate what took place in his restoration. John 18, you'll remember that Jesus has been arrested and he's been marched back to the house of Annas, the high priest, and they're there in a courtyard. And so Jesus is there and there's a crowd that's milling around in this courtyard and all the disciples have fled except Peter and John. They've made their way back into Jerusalem and back into this courtyard and it was there In the middle of the night, hovering around this charcoal fire in the crisp night air that Peter sinned grievously. You remember it. Look at verse 15, chapter 18, verse 15. Simon Peter was following Jesus and so was another disciple. That's John. John. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter was standing at the door outside, so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. And so you can imagine this scene, can't you? Here's, here's Jesus in the courtyard with all the temple people and the temple guards, and Peter and John come up, and John gets, gets let in. He's recognized by the doorkeeper. Peter's not recognized, but John goes back and says, Hey, he's my friend. Can you let him in? And so Peter comes in with John. And so they're standing in the middle of this courtyard, and Jesus is being tried right there before Annas, the high priest. Verse 17. And the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire for it was cold and they were warming themselves and Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. And so here here he is, Jesus is standing before the high priest, The, the temple police are milling around and Annas is questioning Christ and John and Peter have been admitted into the courtyard and the servant girl recognizes him and says, hey, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? Peter's caught off guard. You remember, just a few hours before this, he was boasting, saying, I will stand for you. These all will pass away, or these all will fall away. They'll all deny you, run away. And he blurts out and says, no, I will stand firm. I I will be the one who stays with you to the end. And here he is being questioned by this little servant girl. And he says, no, I don't know him. First denial. And when you sin once, always easier to sin the second time in the same area isn't it when you lie once it's always easier to lie a second time to cover up the first lie when you deny once it's always easier to deny a second time to cover up the first denial Well, that's what happened look at verse 25 now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself and they said to him you are not also one of his disciples are you he denied it and said I am not second time Another group of people this time recognizes him and says, you must be Peter, you you look like him, and you must be associated with him. And here they are, they they pose the question again to him a second time, and he responds the same way, I'm I'm not. Second denial. A short time later, the third denial came. Look at verse 26. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? This time a witness, a relative of the guy whose ear Peter cut off stands there and says hey I recognize you you're the one who did that to my relative you're with Jesus aren't you look at verse 27 Peter then denied it again he fiercely here denied any knowledge of in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and so within an hour just a few minutes Peter goes from knowing Christ and standing firm for him to denying him three times Verse 27, and immediately a rooster crowed. Happened exactly as Christ said it would happen. He said there'd be a rooster that will crow. Before that happens, you will deny me three times. That's exactly the way it happened. You remember we said as we went through this account in John 18, that at that very moment, Jesus looked Peter in the eyes. Luke chapter 22, verses 56 say, Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Can you imagine? Three times this denial comes off your lips so easily, so freely, so quickly. And at the end of that third denial, suddenly your eyes lock with Christ. And that piercing glance of the Lord Jesus pierces right into Peter's soul. Peter left, weeping. The tears could no longer wash the image from his mind. He was cut to the core. Here's a man who was deeply grieved. He was in deep anguish and in agony. And his soul was deeply afflicted because he had just there denied the Lord Jesus Christ. He had failed. He had sinned grievously. And he would never forget it. And so here he is just a few days later. And he's wondering, what's going to happen to me? What about me? What? Where do I stand now with Christ? Where do I stand as a disciple? Where do I stand in ministry? Have I been disqualified? Have I been Removed? Will I ever be restored? Can I ever have a fruitful ministry again? Can I ever be used of the Lord? He's wondering that. Incidentally, when you go over to John chapter 21 and Peter is fishing, this may be why he's fishing. He thinks, I'm done. It's over. I've been removed from ministry. And so the only thing I know how to do is now catch fish. And so you fast forward three chapters and you come to John 21 and here he is catching fish. He's gone back to the only thing he knows. He thinks he may have been pulled from the game. He's been removed from the squad and he's back to fishing for fish. Failure is inevitable. Failure is inevitable in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you and I sin similarly we are often left to wonder, am I done? Am I finished? Am I I removed from from ministry? We wonder if our our lives and our sins have have caused us to be determined unfaithful and disqualified and prohibited from ever serving the Lord again. That's what Peter was wrestling with. And maybe this morning you're wrestling with the same thing. Maybe you're saying, I really messed up on this one. I really dropped the ball. I really sinned this way. Ed Welch, in an article on living with regrets, says maybe you believe that the kingdom of Christ is where you have to pay for your past sins and past indiscretions or just being a human being who is not omniscient and omnipresent. You believe maybe that if you store up enough regret and remorse, you can finally sneak out of your self-imposed purgatory, end quote. Is that you this morning? Are you in a self-imposed purgatory? Are are you in a place where you have rendered yourself ineffective for the kingdom because of what you've done in the past and you maybe can store up enough regret and enough remorse and you can finally sneak your way out of your self-imposed prison and out of the doghouse with Christ? Is that you? We need to learn that failure is inevitable. But we need to learn as well that You can be restored. And you can be brought back into fellowship with Christ. And you can be brought into service for Christ. And Peter had to learn the same thing. And a breakfast and a walk on the beach changed all that. So go back to John chapter 21. Not only must we learn that failure is inevitable in our relationship with Christ. It's part and parcel of being a Christian. It's going to happen. The second lesson we need to learn is that restoration is promised because of the faithfulness of Christ. Restoration is promised. And here's the hope. Here's the joy that comes from those times of sadness and sorrow that spring from our sin. Restoration is promised because of Christ's faithfulness and forgiveness. What we need to remember is that the kingdom of heaven is regret-free. It's regret-free. We don't have to live with regrets. We don't have to let the past define us. We don't have to keep going back to what if, what if, what if. This is what Peter needed to learn. Look at verse 15, chapter 21, verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast. I want you to just know how that starts. You remember that at this point, Jesus has appeared on the beach the disciples were out in the boat catching nothing all night. They're discouraged, they're hungry, they're tired, they're, they're weary. And as they approach the shore, they, they see this man on the beach who's Christ and he's there. And Jesus begins preparing for them a, a breakfast, a meal. And one of the purposes of this breakfast was to demonstrate to Peter fellowship and acceptance and restoration. Look at verse 9, up in chapter 21, verse 9. So when they got out of the land... They saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Now, remember we said that there's two charcoal fires in John. Only two places it's mentioned. The first charcoal fire is where Jesus is being tried by Annas and Peter denied Christ at that first charcoal fire. You fast forward a few chapters and you come to the second charcoal fire in the book of John. And here Peter's restored. And so here, here's Jesus on the beach, making breakfast. Verse 13, look what it says. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. And so here's the the creator of the universe making breakfast. The cool thing is he didn't have to go fishing for fish, did he? He just made his own. And when you're Jesus and when you're the creator of everything, you don't have to go fishing. You could just make your own fish and your own bread and have it right there. And that's exactly what he did. So here's the risen Christ on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He's called the disciples in. There's a fire burning on the beach. The smoke is ascending from this fire. I wonder at this point what Peter was thinking. I mean, put yourself in Peter's shoes. Just, just a couple of days before, he's, he's denied Christ. And still burning in his mind is the question, what happens to me now? I've really blown it. I fled when Christ was crucified. I followed for a a little while, and then I denied Him. Now I've gone back to fishing for fish instead of fishing for men. What happens to me? So here Jesus invites them to breakfast, and I think here Peter Peter starts to get a glimpse that he's going to be restored that he's going to be brought back into fellowship with Christ and the message is unmistakable. Peter, you're cleansed, you're forgiven, you're a friend, you're restored because let me invite you to a meal. This is what he needed to learn. And he needed to be restored not only to Christ, but also to the disciples. And he needed to be restored publicly in order that the church would know without a doubt what Jesus thought of Peter. So here he is, sitting at this fire with Jesus and the rest of the disciples. He's probably still ashamed, filled with regret, his, his mind swirling with what ifs and if onlys and, and what if I if had responded this way. Well, Christ wasn't finished with Peter yet. He's still got some questions. He's still got to probe a little bit in Peter's heart. And this is what the Lord Jesus does. He begins to ask some questions. He begins to open up Peter's heart so Peter can see what was actually there. And so when breakfast is over, Jesus singles Peter out. Look at verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. Now, this is the first exchange in Jesus' questioning of Peter. And I want you to notice there's a question by Jesus, a response by Peter, and a charge by Jesus then to continue in ministry. And that scene plays out two more times. Look at verse 16. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. Same thing. There's a question by Jesus, a response by Peter, and a charge by Christ. Verse 17. Verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to this to him this the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Question by Jesus, response by Peter, charged by Christ. Why is that important? Listen. Three denials require three restorations. Three denials by Christ. Uh, of Christ by Peter, three restorations of Peter by Christ. And I, what I love about this, if there was ever an opportunity for Jesus to say to Peter, Peter, I told you so. I told you we'd do this. I told you you would respond this way. Shame on you. You shouldn't have done it. I knew you were going to do it. You did it. This would have been the time to say that. But he doesn't. He doesn't go back to Peter's failure. He doesn't go back to Peter's denial. He doesn't go back to to Peter's problem. He doesn't make Peter regret even further what he did. No, this is Christ lovingly, graciously restoring a disciple who's fallen. That's how Christ operates. He's gentle. He's tender. He's gracious. He's loving. And so he asks him the first time, Verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And and this is where the questioning kind of begins. And this is where Christ, in his omniscience, begins to probe Peter's heart. And he skillfully and tenderly inserts the scalpel with these questions. And he's beginning to diagnose Peter's heart. Jesus was asking him, Peter, do you really love me? after all that's happened, after everything has transpired, after those three denials publicly of me before those people, can you truly say, Peter, you love me? John doesn't tell us, but I have to imagine at this point, Peter's heart starts racing, right? His stomach starts churning. His eyes with tears this was, a, this was a tense moment. Notice what what Jesus calls him Simon, son of John. that's important that's important because that's not his name anymore. you remember when Jesus called Peter back in John chapter one, he says, "You are Simon, the son of John, but now you shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter." His name is now Peter. It's not Simon anymore. Simon means pebble or small stone. And Jesus changes his name to Peter the Rock. And so throughout his ministry, Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, you need to be the changed man that you are in me. You're the Rock. You're the strong one. You're the courageous, solid man one. That's who you are in Christ. But here's the problem. Peter hadn't acted like the rock that he was supposed to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was acting like the stone, the pebble. He was weak. And in the moment when it truly counted, Peter fell. He denied Christ. And so he says, Simon. See what he's doing? He's getting his attention." He's calling Peter's attention to his own weakness, and he's saying, Peter, you need to remember that I changed your name to rock. That's how you're to live. That's how you're going to conduct yourself. But you've been acting recently like Simon the pebble. He's doing this lovingly, graciously, helping to discern Peter's heart. And So he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, what are these? Have you thought about this? What does he point to when he says, do you love me more than these? There's a number of different interpretations as to what he's referring to. It could mean, do you love me more than you love your fellow disciples? That's one possible, possible interpretation. Do you love me more than you love Nathaniel? Do you love me more than you love John? Do you love me more than you love Thomas? That's possibly what he's saying. It could also mean, do you love me more than these things? And at that moment, he points to the boat, the fish, the net, He says, Peter, do you love me more than fishing? Because that's what you've gone back to. You've gone back to the nets. You've gone back to your profession. You've gone back to what you're comfortable with. Do you really love me more than what you're good at? Do you love me more than your fishing occupation, your career, your vocation? Do you love me enough to say goodbye to all of it? It could also mean Do you love me more than these other disciples love me? You remember Peter, just a couple days before that, had said, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay my life down for you. Mark chapter 14, verse 29, Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, I will not. What's he saying? He's going to say at that point, I love you more than these guys love you. I love you more than John. I love you more than Nathaniel. I love you more than Thomas. I love you more than any of these guys. And if they fall away, fine, but not me. The very thing he boasted about, though, was not what he did. He fell. He denied Christ. And so Jesus may be saying, you you claim to love me more than these other disciples, but do you really? Do you really? In light of all that has happened since your boast, Jesus may be here asking Peter if he still thinks that his love for Christ exceeds that of all others. Those are all possible interpretations of what Jesus is asking. It may be all of those things. Bottom line, Jesus was asking Peter, are you committed to me? Do you love me, Peter? You've said it. You've boasted about it. You've proclaimed it. Do you love me? See, what Christ is doing here, he's he's probing into Peter's heart. He's evaluating his level of commitment and his degree of love for Christ. Listen, mark this down somewhere. If you don't really love Christ, you can't really serve Christ. You understand that? Mark that down. Meditate on that this week. If you don't really love Christ, you can't effectively serve Christ. Listen, love is the primary motivation in ministry. In whatever position, elder, deacon, pastor, person who sets up the chairs, counselor, Youth group or person, it doesn't matter. If you want to really minister for Christ, the base motivation has to be love for Christ. Do you love him? That's what Peter's being asked by Christ, do you love me? Now, if you've studied this passage before, you know that there are different words for love that's being used here. And you need to understand this because it, it really sheds some light on what Jesus is saying and what Peter is saying in response. And so Jesus asked Peter the question in verse 15, Peter, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he literally says, do you agapao me? Do you agape me? Do you love me with the highest love possible? Now, remember that there's three words for love in the Greek language. There's eros, which is sexual love. There's phileo, which is brotherly love. And there is agape, which is the highest expression of love, the most devoted, sacrificial, committed love there is possible. And so when Jesus asked the question of Peter, he says to Peter, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me with great sacrifice and great devotion and great commitment? Is your love towards me a sacrificial love that's willing to love anything else for my sake? Do you agapao me? It's the same word he uses in verse 16. When Jesus asked Peter a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you agapao me? Do you agape me? What did Peter use? All three times when he responded, he says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. You know that I love you with an affection. And that's how Peter responds here in verse 15. Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Why is that important? That's important because Peter knows he can't say Lord, I agape you. Because he knows that his life has not demonstrated that. He knows that his denials have demonstrated the fact that he can't say, I have loved you with the highest level of love, with the greatest sacrifice and the greatest commitment possible. He knows he can't say that because his life hasn't backed it up. He can't bring himself to profess the full agape love because he's denied Christ. He's abandoned him. And so he says, Yes, Lord, you know that I owe you. It's one less. He refuses to use the higher term of love. He used the lower term for love, the, the humbler word, because after all his failures and all his disgrace and all his faults and after all of his falls, he couldn't bring himself to say that he loved Christ with agape love. But he really loves Christ, he does love Christ. He loves Christ with a phileo love. He loves Christ with that love of affection, that love of friendship, that love of relationship. He says, even though I can't say I love you with this agape, highest level love, I can't say that. But I can say, Lord, I really do phileo you. I love you with this affectionate relationship love. He's a broken man. He's humbled, isn't he? he? He's not the same bold, brash, impetuous Peter that he once was. He's, he's humbled. And he has a deep affection for Christ, and he knows that Christ knows this in his heart. So what does Jesus say? Verse 15. He says to him, tend my lambs. That's another way of saying, then go and serve me then go and be faithful shepherd to my sheep. Go feed them. Go take care of them. Go be like a shepherd to the flock. And so you see what Jesus is doing here to Peter. He is reinstating him. He is recommissioning him to the work of the ministry publicly before the disciples so the whole church knows he's established. He is recommissioned. This is so good. He didn't say to Peter, huh, well, Peter, all you got is philetto love. Let's move on to someone else. Nathaniel, what do you got? You got phileo love, you got agape love, what do you got? He doesn't do that. Jesus says, Peter, you got that phileo love? We can work with that. We, we, we can work with that. He accepted him because he never expects us to love him in the fullest sense before we can begin serving him. Do you understand that? You don't have to be totally sold out, 100% perfect in every area of your life before you can begin serving Christ. Jesus knows where Peter's been, but he also knows Peter's heart. And he knows that there is a deep love there for him. And Jesus says, we can work with that. Go do the work of the ministry. Get back at it. There's a second question Jesus poses to Peter, verse 16. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this again, he uses the same word. Do you agape? Ag- Agapao me. Do you agape me? And you notice in this question, he drops the comparison. First question, he said, do you love me more than these? But now he's dropped the comparison, and he just gets right to the point, Peter, do you agape me? That's the question. He's probing a little deeper. He's dropping the comparisons here. The, The issue now is not, do you love me more than your fishing nets, or do you love me more than the disciples? That's not the issue. The issue now is, Peter, get to the bottom. Do you love me? Do you agapao me? And Peter responds in the same way he did to the first question. Verse 16. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I phileo you. And so Peter gives the same answer as he gave before. He said, you know, Christ, you know that I phileo you. You know that I have a a love of affection for you. And Jesus says in verse 16, "Then, then shepherd my sheep. Go do the work of the ministry. You're restored. You're reinstated. You're recommissioned. happens a third time. Three denials require three restorations. So he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, remember what we've said. First question, do you agapao me? Second question, do you agapao me? Third question, do you phileo me? See what Jesus does? He changes it from agape to phileo. And he comes down to Peter's level and he says, Okay, Peter, you said you phileo me, you phileo me. Now I'm going to ask you the question. Do you phileo me? Do you love me with this tender affection that you say you have? He's coming down to Peter's level and he says... Peter, okay, do you really love me with this affection, this brotherly love, this relationship love that you say you profess you have? Do you really have it? Peter was grieved. Look at verse 17. Peter was grieved. Because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Why is he grieved? He's grieved because he's had to ask him the question three times. But he's also grieved because he's changed the word from agape to phileo. And what he's doing is calling into question Peter's level of love for Christ. Really, Peter? Does your life even show this level of love? Because up to this point, you've denied me. And now you've gone back to fishing for fish. Do you really phileo me? Because I hear what you're saying. But does your life demonstrate it? That's why Peter's grieved. Because Jesus is getting to his heart. He's getting to the very part of his soul. And Peter's cut to his heart and he's grieved. Peter's love is called into question by Christ. And that's what hurt him. But it's a good hurt. It's a good hurt right it's a good hurt because jesus is getting right to the core of his actions he's really evaluating his level of love for christ and he's saying to peter peter if you're going to say you love me then it's going to show up in your life it's going to be evident in your actions and you're going to stand firm for me when the pressure's on so peter do you have it This, this had to be painful think about it do any of us like to be examined like this much less publicly? Should we, should we take you up on stage and begin to ask you these heart-probing questions, Bill? Do, do you really love me? Because I've got some questions for you. This had to hurt. This had to be very painful for Peter. Such intense scrutiny on his weaknesses there before Christ and before the other disciples. But it was necessary. It was necessary if Peter was going to take a prominent role in the church. This had to happen. So the disciples and the church knew that he has been fully restored, fully commissioned, fully put back into ministry. Painful, but necessary. How did Peter respond? Look at verse 17. He said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And so Peter says, yeah, I really do love you that much. I know my life has not been what it should be. I've denied you. I, I, I should have responded differently. But I do love you. You see, he's learned his lesson, hasn't he? Here's, here's, here's Peter who, who really knows. He's really learned from all these circumstances. He comes down to it and says, Yes, I do really love you. No attempt to thwart the questions there's no self-righteousness here in peter there's no defensiveness here in peter he's not he's not trying to plead his case he's broken he's contrite he's subdued so jesus says verse 17 then tend my sheep then go do go to the work of the ministry get back at it you've fallen You've had some problems. Let's get back up. You've been restored by my grace, by my mercy. Let's get back at it. Do the work of the ministry. Start taking care of the sheep. Start taking care of my flock. Start being the pastor to my people that you need to be. And you know what? He got it. And you know how we know he got it? Read First Peter 5, verses 1 to 2. Therefore, this is Peter, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, you shepherd the flock of God among you. He got it. Because in his letter about it, he wrote the very things that, that Christ instructed him to do, he's passing on to those that would continue the work of the ministry after him. Friends, this is what happens when you are bathed in the mercy and the grace and the restoring power of Christ. No one's beyond hope. And that's really what makes the story so encouraging. Here's a guy who fell, and he fell harder than most of us have ever fallen. He and that Jesus in his grace and his mercy it says get back at it. You're restored. Get back into the work of the ministry. Some of you this morning are in Peter's shoes. You've been disloyal to Christ. You've been unfaithful to him. When, when put to the test, you've you've failed, and you have regrets. You have regrets as you look back on your life. You have regrets about how you treated people. You've you've had regrets about those times in your life where you've backslidden. You've you've had regrets about missed opportunities for the gospel. You you have regrets about failed service for Christ. And maybe you're here this morning, and you put yourself in that self-induced purgatory, and you're kind of flogging yourself with self-induced regret. And you're saying, maybe if I just do this enough to myself, maybe if I just live with the regret long enough, then, then I can kind of work my way out of this self-imposed prison of regret. That's not the way it is in Christ's kingdom. That's not how it works. You go to Christ. You go to the cross. And you find there forgiveness. You find grace. Find mercy. Your ministry's not over. You're not done. You're not benched. You're not on the sidelines for the rest of your life. Get back at it. Go to God in His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness. And you can have forgiveness granted, fellowship restored, and fruitfulness guaranteed. Here's the bottom line question the real question is Do you love Christ? That's what counts. When it comes to the issues in your life where you feel like you've failed, you go to the cross because the cross is the means of the gospel. It's the means of grace. And grace flows from the cross for salvation, for sanctification, and for restoration. And the biggest question now is not what are you doing to pay for your regrets? The biggest question is do you love Christ? Do you really love Him? And if you do, then you're going to be busy about the work of the kingdom. You're going to get back at it. You're going to get back in the game. You're going to say, all right, I'm in. I'm all in. I'm fully committed. I really love Christ. And because I love him, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be serving. I'm going to immerse myself fully in the work of the kingdom. Is that you? If Christ met you on a beach, made a campfire, and served you breakfast, and asked you the question, do you love me? What would you say? It's the one basic qualification for serving Christ is love for him. Do you have it? Father, we thank you for the grace that you've shown us in this passage. Lord, we're all Peter. We're all like him. And every single one of us here this morning has regrets. Every single one of us can look back in our life and we can lament the ways that we've failed you. We can lament the, the, the times and the occasions where we have fallen short of your glory, when we've sinned, when we've fallen hard. But Lord, there's grace. Grace through Christ. Grace to be restored. Lord, for those who are here this morning who are Weighed down by the weight of this regret. Encourage their hearts. Restore them to full fellowship with you, with the body of Christ. Lord, let us say with Peter, we really love you. We love you deeply. We love you fully. We love you with a committed devotion that can only come from those who are gripped with what we once were without Christ and what we are now in Christ. Thank you for grace and mercy. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org.